let's get into our message today. And uh, as I said, we're going to be starting a brand new series, which is titled A Study of Philippians. And so that should give you a pretty good idea of what the series is about and what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. And really my hope is that um, as we enter into this, we can maybe both get a better perspective of the bigger topics of what the writer is trying to bring to our attention, as well as get into some of the details and intricacies that maybe we typically overlook as we read through this type of book. And so I'm hoping we can bring these things together and really learn and grow and and apply some new things to our lives. I will tell you that this series is going to be a little bit different than what we typically do. Uh, Most of our series are pretty topic-driven, And so what we get to do is kind of take a concept, dig into it, be very, very focused with that. Uh, For instance, our Words Matter series, that's what we did, right? All those weeks, we were just digging into one very focused concept. And the truth is, is when you create a message like that, it's kind of easy to kind of drive at one point and come to one particular conclusion. But as we're studying uh, the book of Philippians, what you'll notice is that we're kind of going to be hopping around a little bit. It might kind of feel scattered at times, but we'll do our best to bring it to a, a nice conclusion. And so I'm very much looking forward to that. Whenever you begin to dig into any book of the Bible, it doesn't matter what it is, um, you always have to first understand the context, all right? We talk about this often, but if you don't understand the context, you're likely not going to understand the writing that is held within. And it's very easy for us these days to get disconnected with that. We forget that this is a particular person writing to a particular audience at a particular time in history for a particular reason. We very quickly forget about that. And again, we miss out on so many of the things that the writer is trying to show us. So the way that we're gonna start today is by just opening up some of the context of what this book is about and the setting in which it takes place. And so we're gonna begin with authorship, okay? Who is writing this? particular letter. And so very early on in this, we're going to see that we have the Apostle Paul, who is writing this, uh, apparently with a little bit of help from his disciple Timothy, but primary authorship is given to Paul. Now, the good news for us is Paul is a very prominent writer within Scripture. He's accredited with 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament, which means we know a decent amount about him. And so a few things that I think are going to be important as we enter into this study. First and foremost, Paul is Jewish by birth. Okay, we learn this very early on. And in fact, as he gets into his kind of young adult years, what we later learn is he becomes a very staunch, very legalistic type of Jew. In fact, later on in Philippians, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, As to the law, a Pharisee. This is very much who he was as a young adult before he was introduced to Jesus. Additionally, we know that Paul was born and raised in a Roman province, which means that he was Jewish, but that he grew up as a Roman citizen within a very deep Greek culture, okay? And in fact, um, the city in which he grew up in was often known as kind of an intellectual hub 
of sorts. And so it was likely that he was very learned in both Jewish and Greek cultures. And that gave him a very unique perspective and ability to connect with both groups. And that's probably why he was as effective as he was as an apostle and as they reached out into the Gentile region. Okay, so we have Paul. He's the one who is primarily writing this, and he's writing this to the Philippians. Now, who are the Philippians? Well, They are a church community that Paul actually helped establish years before in the Roman colony of Philippi. All right, and we'll actually throw a map up here for you. I'm just, I'm a visual learner, so it just helps me kind of understand where exactly we're at. You'll see at the top center there, this is where Philippi was located. But a very uh, important thing to understand about Philippi, okay? Number one is Philippi was the very first European city that Paul visited during his missionary journeys. Okay, it's the first place, which means it's the first European city to effectively and deeply hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, if you want to read more about that, you can go to Acts chapter 16. It shows us how this begins, which would have been about 15 to 20 years before this letter comes about. But as you read through Acts 16, we see some really cool things happening. We see the first European convert, um, and that was a woman by the name of Lydia. Uh, We see this amazing story with Paul and Silas who are imprisoned, and then they get miraculously freed. It's, It's a really interesting chapter. But the bottom line is it shows us this is the first church of Jesus Christ on Greek soil. All right, and that's a big deal for a lot of different reasons, namely because we now have this good news of Jesus Christ reaching a completely different territory with a completely different set of customs, practices, and beliefs. Okay, this is a big deal. Remember, up to this point in history, this message was pretty much exclusive to the Jewish people. And so this is the first area where it kind of begins to break out beyond that into this Gentile region. Okay, so first church on Greek soil. Here's the second thing we need to understand about Philippi, and that is that this was a colony with heavy, heavy Roman roots. They were very much entrenched within this culture for a few different reasons. Um, It was a primary hub for Roman soldiers to go to after war. So for generation upon generation, you have these Roman veterans, these Roman patriots and their families kind of inhabiting the land. So this is very much the people that they're living everyday life with. Um, It was also located on one of the main roads that led to and from Rome. And again, we'll throw up a map so you can see how the road goes directly through Philippi there. And that meant a couple of things. Um, That meant that oftentimes you would have Roman leaders traveling through Philippi, at times staying in Philippi. Um, That also meant that these people had very easy access to and from Rome. And so these are some of the reasons why they were very much entrenched within this culture. In fact, in this day and age, at the time that Paul is writing this, in fact, Philippi was often referred to as Little Rome. Okay, that's how, that's how entrenched they were within this culture. It's kind of a little miniature version of the, the bigger thing. And so the truth is, Paul and his associates had a very interesting task on their hands as they enter into this place. Because in many ways, they're having to kind of reshape this Jesus message for an entirely different group of people living in an entirely different culture. 
And so what we learn um, from some of the books that Paul writes, both Philippians and others, is that they're going to cater this message of Jesus toward two particular issues, okay? Kind of two angles that they're often going to hit here, starting with this Greek understanding of the gods, all right, which was certainly the, the prevalent belief at this time and especially in this culture. And what that meant is that these people believed in deity. They believed in, in a higher power, but they believed that there were many different gods and they believed that the gods were kind of involved in creation, but also very much disconnected from creation. In other words, there was little to no intimacy or relationship. It was very disjointed, very impersonal. This was their viewpoint of the higher power. And so Paul and his friends are going to kind of enter into this fray here, and they're going to begin framing up this different idea of who God is and how he actually operates within his creation. In fact, pay attention to how Paul speaks of or how he describes God, because oftentimes he's trying to give these Gentile minds a new way of thinking, a new perspective of who God actually is. Okay, so that's the first angle. The second angle, and we talk often about this, is this idea of Roman allegiance. Okay, this was a huge thing at this time in history. Rome was clearly the supreme power of the day. They were large, they were in charge. And what that meant was one thing in particular, Caesar is Lord. All right. Caesar is king. So who do we look to for help? We look to Caesar. Who do we look to for hope? We look to Caesar. Who do we look to for purpose in life? We look to Caesar. And yet again, Paul is going to enter into this discussion and he's going to begin to show them that, hey, somebody else is truly in charge here. All right. So somebody else is actually on the throne. Now we'll still be good citizens of the land and we'll submit to our authorities, but our true allegiance is elsewhere. And he's the one that we look to for help, for hope, and for purpose. And so this is going to be the second angle in which Paul often attacks this, okay? So this maybe helps us understand the Philippian context, who these people are, what is kind of surrounding them. But there's one more bit of context that is very much going to frame up this letter. And that is, best guesses are that Paul is writing this between 55 AD and 62 AD. Now, it's really impossible to know exactly when. Could have been a little before, a little after. But this is kind of the, the neighborhood we're working with here. And what this meant, and this is a huge factor in this letter, is that Paul is currently writing this as he's in prison. All right? Um, now, again, we know quite a bit about Paul, so we know that this wasn't rare for him. He often found himself persecuted, often found himself in a great deal of trouble because of the way in which he was spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is where he finds himself at this time. And in fact, this is the very reason for the letter. Um, because back at this time, prisoners would not have been provided with much of anything during their incarceration, especially when it came to, to things like food. They did not get you know, three meals a day or any sort of regular sustenance for their stay there, which meant you were almost entirely dependent upon your friends and your family to provide for you while you were in prison. And so what we quickly learn here within this letter is that this community within Philippi that Paul helped establish, they have apparently rallied behind him and they have sent him this huge gift that is going to help sustain him for quite some time. Now, we don't know exactly what the gift is or how big the gift was, but according to Paul's response here, it seems to be pretty significant. And this very much shapes the nature of this letter. 
In fact, many scholars will tell you that the book of Philippians is simply a thank you letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. We see it's full of love and joy and and gratitude. Even the structure of it is very personal, very heartfelt. This is very different than most of the other letters that we have from the Apostle Paul, and it's helpful to know that from the beginning. Now, this leads us to some of the primary themes within this book, okay? And maybe you can write these down, but that is joy unity, and hope, okay? These are the three things you're gonna see come up over and over and over again. And the reason I say take note of that is because as we go through this over the next few weeks, I think you should highlight the times where any of these themes come up and just see what that might do for your perspective and for your actions, okay? So, so with all that being said, we now understand some of the context, what kind of frames up this particular writing from Paul. And so what we're gonna do for the rest of our time today is we're gonna take a look at the introduction to Paul's letter, okay? We're going to kind of read through this whole section. This is verse 1 through 11. And then we're going to come back and kind of start breaking it down and seeing if we can get some of the details that are held within. So get your Bibles out. If you don't have that, you can watch the screen starting in verse 1. This is how it begins. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay. So this is Paul's introduction. In many ways, it kind of sets up so many of the things that are to come. But already, we see some of the things that we have already talked about. Right away, we see the context, right? We have Paul and Timothy writing to the saints or the church in Philippi. So at least primarily, he's writing this to a Christian audience. Um, we see that Paul makes mention of the fact that he's in prison. So this confirms the setting that he's currently in. Uh, we're already beginning to see these ideas of joy and gratitude that we mentioned earlier. Um, he's talking about how he thanks God and all of his remembrance of them. Uh, He even makes comments like, I have you in my heart. I long for you with affection. Like he's really digging in. In fact, some of the Greek words that he's using here are very, very rare. He's digging deep to show them just how appreciative he is of their sacrifice. And so right out of the gate, we're seeing these things, joy and gratitude and, and unity. But there are three parts in particular that I want to lean into within this section that really bring some cool things to light. And I think they're going to really help us as we apply these things to our lives. And so we're actually going to start with Paul's opening lines, okay? Verses one and two. Let's remind ourselves of how he begins. 
Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are obviously just his opening lines, right? His, his opening remarks. But there are two things that Paul is already communicating here if we rightly understand the context. And the first thing is this. We are two lines into his letter, and he has already used the word Christ, or in the Greek, Christos, three different times. In the first two lines, already he's calling upon this. And in fact, the last time he does it, he even throws in the word Lord for good measure. So what is Paul doing here? What's he trying to communicate? Well, remember what we talked about a few weeks ago in our Words Matter series, and that is in our world today, uh, we typically see the word Christ and we immediately just think of that as a name, right? Jesus Christ, that's his name. And then we move on to whatever else is said after that. But we have to understand for them in this time and especially in this culture, this was a huge deal. This is a huge thing that Paul is communicating. The word Christ meant Lord, Savior, King, Messiah. Like it was this heavy, heavy word with so many implications that were attached to it. And while it was this Messiah piece that often stood out to the Jewish audience, it was very much this Lord and King part that stood out to the Gentiles. Because remember, Caesar was Lord, right? Rome was master. This is who gave you hope and courage and purpose. And so from the very beginning of this letter onward, Paul's going to remind these people over and over again, don't get caught up in the Roman narrative. Don't get sucked into the the Greek culture here. Let me remind you, Jesus is the one who is truly in control. Jesus is the one who gives real hope. Jesus is the one who gives true purpose. Over and over again, he's gonna remind these people, keep your eyes set on Jesus. Now, here's the thing. It's really easy to say from the outside looking in, right? Yeah, just go against the grain of what everybody else is doing. Just swim upstream your entire life. No big deal, have fun with that. But can you imagine for a moment how difficult that would have been, especially in this day and age? We're talking about life-threatening stuff in many cases. This is what these people are dealing with. How much easier, how much more convenient would it have just been to do what everybody else is doing? Just go with the flow of what culture says. It would have been the safer route. It would have been the more prestigious route. It would have been the better social route for them. But Paul's going to enter into this and he's going to say, it doesn't mean that it's the right route. It doesn't mean that it's what you should do. It doesn't mean that's how you should live your life. He's going to have to keep this in front of these people. Keep your eyes set on Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Lucky for us these days, um, we don't have to worry about being swayed by things like culture, right? It's not like we're, you know, we're swayed by a culture that says the ultimate pursuit in life is money and possessions and material things, right? It's not like we're swayed by a culture that tries to tie our identity to our hobbies and our social status and our patriotism. Like, lucky for us, this isn't a problem anymore. But for them, like for them, they needed to be reminded of this, to live as Christ. In in other words, he is king. He is Lord. He is Savior. And as long as you keep him first, then everything else will take care of itself. You have to keep him first. And this is what Paul is trying to communicate. And that's important to call out too, because it's not that any of those other things are inherently bad or inherently evil. The question is, who is truly Lord of your life? Who is truly king of your heart? I want you to ponder that for a second. 
And Paul is lovingly encouraging them, keep Christ at the center. Ensure that he is number one and everything else will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is the first thing he's communicating. The second thing we see here in his opening lines is that Paul calls out a few attributes of God. Now, this is something that he would often do. He would often begin and end his letters with a very similar salutation. And in this case, he leans on two particular attributes, and that is the grace of God and the peace of God, okay? These are the two that he calls out. Now, the truth is, is we could spend the rest of our time talking about those, breaking those down, and barely even scratch the surface. They're huge concepts, right? But here's the thing that's important to call out, especially within the context. Remember that these are people who come from a very Greek mindset, which tells them that God or the gods are far away, all right, they're, they're non-personal. Frankly, they're not all that interested in you or in what's going on in the world. They're very much separated from you. And so with two words, Paul is gonna shine a bright light on who the God of the universe truly is. He's a God of grace and he's a God of peace. In other words, he does care about you. He does love you. He is personal. He is with you. Like this is what he's trying to keep in front of their eyes. Think about it. Paul could have used any words he wanted to here. He could have called on any aspects of who God is, but over and over again, we see him going back to these two. Keep your eyes on this. Remind your heart of who God truly is. He's a God of grace and a God of peace. Now, again, those are words that go in one ear and right out the other for most of us. But think about if we would remind ourselves of that every moment of every day. He's a God of grace. I think about what that would do in our relationship and, and how much more we would want to lean into him. He's a God of peace. Think about how that would shape our perspective and how we see people and how we deal with people. This would very much change our lives. And this is what Paul is hoping for, for the Philippian audience. Here's the thing I love about scripture. When you bring context into play, even something as simple as an introduction, all of a sudden kind of begins to communicate some really fundamental things for our understanding and for our perspective. And so Let's continue. Let's move into the next part that I want to discuss. And this is actually at the end of the section that we just read. Paul ends with a prayer. And so let's remind ourselves of what he says here, starting in verse 9. Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, so again, there's a lot in there. We don't have time to break all of it down, but there are two words in particular that really stand out here. And both of them actually bring us back to our Words Matter series. It's actually kind of cool. So many of the words that we discussed are gonna come into play here with this letter. So we're already gonna get to kind of exercise this new understanding and perspective. But the first word that stands out here is the word love. All right. Now, love was the first word that we talked about in Words Matter. So let me just do a quick ref refresh, make sure we understand what we're dealing with here. Okay. Today, we very much view love as this abstract, uh, ethereal type of thing. In other words, if it feels right, it's love. If it doesn't feel right, it's not love. It's like this thing floating in the air that we're trying to, to grab hold of. But love to them was something deeper. It was something richer. It was something more grounded because it was mostly about commitment. 
In other words, if I commit to loving you, then guess what? I love you. Like what a novel concept, right? This is very much what the word meant to them. And we actually see this in the sense of what Paul communicates. He says that your love may abound in real knowledge and all discernment. In other words, it's rooted in something. It's not floating in the air that we're trying to catch it. It's real, it's firm, it's, it's tangible. And then Paul says, let this deeply rooted, committed love for God and for others, let that be your guide, all right? Let that, let that lead the way. Let that show you the things that are excellent. Let that be the thing that shows you what is good and what is right so that, and here's the culmination of his prayer, you bear fruit of righteousness, all right? This is his prayer for the people. Now, as we've discussed before, very easily we read the word righteousness and we start thinking about personal morality, right? We personalize it right away. The little things we should do and the little things we shouldn't do, we moralize the whole thing. But remember, righteousness is far more relational than that. In fact, a few weeks ago, we defined it as the standard of right relationship. Or maybe better put, the standard of doing right by others. That's what righteousness is about at its core. So what Paul is saying here is, I want deeply rooted love to lead and guide you so that you bear fruit of doing right by others. That's his prayer in a summation. Now, here's the thing. One of the reasons righteousness comes up so often in the New Testament is because it's essentially the working out of the great commandment. What's the great commandment? To love God and to love others. How do we do that? By way of righteousness, by doing right by God and doing right by others. That's the entire concept boiled up into one thing. And don't miss how big that is. Jesus says all the law, all the prophets, all of it is summed up in the great commandment. And this is what Paul's prayer is. Let love guide you into bearing fruit of righteousness. Let that shape your perspective. Let that shape your thinking. Let that shape your actions that you would bear fruit of doing right by others. This is his prayer and it should very much be ours today as well. And this leads us to the last section here because right in the center of this is something very important. All right, there's a verse that is sitting right in the middle that I would argue is the overriding point of Paul's entire introduction here. And that is verse six. Let's read this very slowly together. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, this I think is really the heart of how he is starting this letter. Now, the truth is, is there is so much to get into there. So many things we could talk about. We could talk about the word confident. I'm confident of this. That is actually one of the Greek words for trust. This is what Paul's trying to get them to understand. I want you to trust in God to this extent. Uh, we could talk about the word perfect there and how different our understanding today compared to theirs actually is. Today, we, we view perfect as this very mathematical thing. It's flawless. It's 100%, right? That's what perfect is. And oftentimes when we think of perfect, it immediately reminds us of our flaws and our faults because we'll never be perfect, right? But for them, perfect was simply the idea of completeness. Uh, it was the idea of, of wholeness. And it actually made them think about growth and maturity and perseverance. In many ways, it was the idea that God was going to complete in them what he created them for. That was what perfect was all about to them. And so it very much brought about a different feeling than we get today. But here's the thing that I initially thought of when I read this scripture a few weeks ago. And that is, it's really easy to start something, right? Like it's, it's really easy to, to begin something. It's easy to start working out. Uh, it's, it's easy to start a new project. 
Um, it's easy to start a new habit. That's easy. But then to continue it, um, then to sustain it, then to actually see it through to completion, that's something entirely different, right? Now we're talking about something in a totally different ballpark. And the news here that Paul is laying before the Philippians is something that is truly profound and enormously encouraging. And that is, yes, God is a starter. He is. We see this from the beginning. He begins things. He creates things. He initiates things. It's one of the first things we learn about God within scripture. But we cannot forget that he's also a finisher. What he begins, what he creates, what he initiates, he will complete. He will see it through to the end. This is what Paul is trying to show them. Now, here's the somber part of what he is insinuating, if not flat out saying. And I think this is really the heart of the message if we remember the context. Paul is saying here, listen, you will experience tension in this journey. It's going to happen. You're going to go through persecution. You're going to have to overcome temptations. You're, you're going to go through frustrations that seem like they're never going to end. It's going to happen, right? Uh, rem remind ourselves who he's talking to and what they're going through during this particular time in history. You're going to go through pain. And, and Paul knows that better than anybody. He's writing this from prison. But here's the other thing he's trying to get them to understand. None of that changes the fact that the work that he has begun in you will be brought to completion. He will see it through. This is the very nature of who God is. And this is what he wants to remind the people of. Truth is, is this is some of the best news you will ever hear in your journey with Christ. That's, that's no joke. Some of the best news you were, especially when it comes to things like faith and, and things like grace, some of the fundamental things that we believe in, right? Because here's the thing, in all of our arguments about what you must do to be saved or how it works itself out or how it gets sustained, we often sadly forget about one thing and that is God. That God is at the center of all of these things. And what Paul just said is, what he begins, he will complete. He'll see it through to the end. So, so the healing that he has begun, he will finish it. The restoration that he started in you, he will see it through. The faith that he has begun, it will be completed. This is such good news that Paul is laying before them. Truth is, is this is a very consistent theme within Scripture. Watch what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Verse one, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that confuses some people until you read the next scripture. Verse two, let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the author. He initiates it. He creates it, but then he also sees it through. It will be completed. And think about, just like ponder for a second, what that means about God. What that means about God in terms of how he sees you, how he sees this community that, that means God won't stop. That means God won't quit on you. That means God won't fall short of what he wants to do in your life. And see, this is why Paul will often say things like, don't lose heart, um, or don't grow weary in doing good, or keep pressing forward. In other words, God's got this. He's faithful. He's reliable. You just have to keep going. What he has begun, he will complete. Now, we're going to see this continue to come up throughout this letter. Over and over again, this will very much be a theme. For instance, later on, he'll say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is not communicating that you're in jeopardy of losing something. He's communicating that what God has begun, he will complete. So keep going, keep persevering, keep growing. He's trying to encourage them through these words. He'll also later say, I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances. Again, whatever God has started, he will complete. So yeah, my circumstances might suck right now. 
Honestly, they, they don't make any sense to me. I feel like I'm in darkness, but I'm content because I trust, I'm confident that what he has begun, he will complete. This is a life-changing perspective if you will give yourself to it. And no doubt, no doubt, this is the primary theme that he's bringing about within this introduction. Because here's the thing, he knows that the Philippian church is doing great right now. They're, they're loving well. They're serving well. They have just lavished him with this generous gift. I mean, unbelievable things that they're doing. But he also knows that the storm is likely coming. He, he also knows that they're going to go through the persecution. He knows that they're going to go through the troubles. And so here he's trying to encourage them. Don't let that shake you. Don't let that discourage you. He's begun an amazing work in you, and he will see it through. This is what he's telling these people. Keep going. Keep persevering. Keep your head up. Remind yourself of who God is and what he's up to. What he has begun, he will complete. 